Isn't it narrow and dogmatic to assert that Jesus Christ is the only way to God for all nations, for all peoples, for all religions, and for all times? What about other religions? Don't they have some truth in them? And what about people who don't get a chance to hear the gospel? What happened to people who died before Christ came? And while we're at it, what happens to infants who die? These are all questions that often surface in the context of the fact that Christianity claims that Jesus Christ is uniquely and solely the Son of God Himself who was sent to die for the sins of the entire world. And what we want to do in our session this particular hour is to consider these and related questions. So we ask the question, is Jesus Christ really the only way to God? I believe the answer to that question is yes, and I have a number of reasons for believing that. First of all, Jesus Christ is unique among all the world's religious leaders in that he claimed that he was himself God Almighty. In John 8.58 and in John 10.30 and in other passages, Jesus claimed that he was God. The Christian religion teaches, and Jesus himself taught, that he was no mere prophet, that he was no mere man, but that he was himself the very incarnation of God himself. When Jesus says that he is the Son of God, he means that he is God the Son, that he is one of the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is unique among all the world's religious leaders in claiming that he was God Almighty, the sole, final, ultimate revelation of God to the human race. It has to be remembered that Jesus' claim to be God was made in a monotheistic context and not an Eastern or pantheistic context. There is a sense in, he, in Hindu culture, for example, where we can all be called gods in the sense that God is everything and in everything, and we are all, therefore, manifestations of the divine. But in a monotheistic context, God is separate from the creation. Everything besides God is not God. And when Jesus Christ claimed that he was God, he meant that in monotheistic terms. The, the scriptures teach us that Jesus Christ is the creator of heaven and earth, that he is the one through whom the world was made. We are told that he holds the world in existence by the very power of his own hands, and that Jesus Christ is the one who sustains and created the world. He is, in short, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. And he is in a monotheistic context, claiming that he is the sole creator God of the universe. Jesus Christ is also unique in claiming to have the authority to stand in the presence of God and in place of God and to forgive sin. In Mark 2.10, Jesus pronounced that a man's sins were forgiven. And in order to demonstrate that he had authority to forgive the man's sins, he healed him of his inability to walk. Jesus Christ is the only religious leader of any reputation in history who claimed to be able to extend in the name of God himself the very forgiveness of sins that sets people at odds with God and separates them from him. Jesus Christ is unique in the miracles he performed and in his resurrection from the dead. 
Jesus Christ said that everything he lived by, everything he taught, and everything he did hinged on whether or not he rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central fact of history according to the Christian faith. And it is the fact that Jesus is no longer in his grave but rose from the dead that makes him unique among all the world's religious leaders. I was debating an atheist one time, and the atheist said to me, Why Jesus? Why not Buddha? Why not Muhammad? Why not some of the other religious leaders in the world? And my response was, Buddha is in his grave. Muhammad is in his grave. All the world's religious leaders are buried and engraved somewhere on this earth. Jesus Christ's grave is empty. He is no longer in his grave. He rose from the dead and he's very much alive. And if you have a death problem, like we all do, it would be important to know someone who has defeated death itself. And Jesus Christ is unique in defeating the grave and defeating death through his resurrection from the dead. Not only is Jesus Christ unique in his claim to be God, in his ability to forgive sins, and in his miracles and resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ himself claimed that he was the only way to God for all people and at all times. If Jesus Christ is telling the truth about this, as I believe he is, it follows that Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism are in fact not ways to God. It doesn't follow that these religions don't have some truths in them. I believe all religions have ethical truths, some teachings that are true, but the core of these religions are false then and not true. Because if Christianity is true and it contradicts the other core claims of the world's religions, they can't both be true or else we believe a contradiction, which is absurd. If Jesus Christ claimed that he was the only way to God, that claim is either true or false. If it's true, then he is the only way to God and other ways are not ways. If it's false, then Jesus Christ is no way to God because he lied or, to or told a falsehood about being the only way. In John 3.18, in John 8.24, in John 11.25 and 26, in John 14.6, in Acts 4.12, among other passages, we are told that there is no other name under heaven that's given among men anywhere by which we have to be saved. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one comes to God but by me. Jesus Christ is the founder of the Christian religion, and all those who take him seriously must believe that he is the only way to God because this was a teaching that he himself gave. Third, Jesus Christ is unique among the world's religious leaders in having solid historical evidence to back the fact that he really did perform miracles and raised from the dead. The alleged miracles performed by others of the world's religious leaders, I believe, are legendary, and there is not sufficient historical evidence to believe they really happened. Not so with the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus. There is substantial historical evidence that these things really happened. Let me mention very briefly 
four pieces of evidence for the reliability of the New Testament documents and the miracles and the resurrection of Jesus. First of all, the dating of these materials. Cambridge scholar A. N. Sherwin White wrote a book called Roman Society and Roman Law in the New Testament. Sherwin White argued that historians of the ancient Near Eastern world have a pretty good idea how long it took for legend and myth to develop and overwhelm historically accurate reports of an event that had happened. According to Sherwin White, even two generations or roughly 80 years after an event had happened, the reporting of that event was still historically accurate when it came to its core details of reporting. But when it comes to the time that Jesus died in 33 AD, to the documents that attest to the fact that he was God, that he performed miracles and rose from the dead, we do not have enough time for legend to develop and overwhelm the historical reliability of the accounts we have. Because these accounts are well within the time frame of 80 years. Jesus died in AD 33. And there is good reason to believe that at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written earlier than 60 A.D. This is because, first of all, the book of Acts is clearly written around 58 to 62 A.D., most likely between 60 and 62 A.D., and the Gospel of Luke was written before the book of Acts. This means that the latest that you can date the Gospel of Luke is, is 60 A.D. It was more likely written sometime between 53 and 58 A.D. Matthew and Mark were written before the Gospel of Luke. And this dates Matthew and Mark sometime in the 40s or the mid-50s. It follows from this dating, beginning with the book of Acts, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all written sometime prior to 60 A.D. This means that they were written at a time that was roughly within a 27-year time frame from the death of Jesus in 33 A.D., 27 years as well within the 80-year window of time Sherwin White identified as a necessary condition for substantial legend to develop. Paul's letters were written between 49 A.D. and 65 A.D. And we notice that Paul's Christology, that is, his belief about Jesus, did not evolve and change over time. It was static, and it was uniformly high, that is to say, the view of Jesus presented in Paul's earlier writings, Galatians and 1 Thessalonians, is the very same as his view of Jesus in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. And in all of Paul's letters, we have a view of Jesus as the risen from the dead, miracle-working, very Son of God himself. Paul knows nothing of a human Jesus that was a wise sage or a spiritual leader that as time with, went on and legend developed, got deified into a divine figure. Paul's view of Jesus was already established by 49 AD, and it held steady from that point on. Now, Paul's view of Jesus was in harmony with the view of Jesus that was held by the rest of the early Christian community. Peter writes in his epistle that he agrees with Paul's account of the Christian religion, and that Paul's views were in harmony with Peter's views. 
Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that his concept of Jesus was something that was revealed to him from heaven, but that he went to Jerusalem to talk to James and John and Peter, the, the, the central apostles, to make sure that his view of Jesus Christ and the Gospels was consistent with what they taught. And he claims that, it, that his view of the Lord Jesus was consistent with the rest of the church's views. You have to remember that people in the ancient Near East were not renegade individualists like you find in America. They were communitarian in nature. They didn't believe in running off and doing their own thing. Paul would have never been a renegade and started his own brand of Christianity that was at odds with the community of Christians started by the apostles themselves to which he belonged. That means that the early church's Christology or view of Jesus depicting him as God incarnate, as risen from the dead, and as a miracle worker, was finished by at least some time before 49 AD. We are now within a 15-year window of time. But there's more, because in the letters of the New Testament, there are passages from two verses to six or seven verses that translate from Greek back into Aramaic and are written in the form of Hebrew poetry. Many New Testament scholars believe that these are little hymns and creeds that are translated from an original Aramaic Hebrew poem into Greek and incorporated in the letters of the New Testament, and that these predate the New Testament. Every time we find one of these letters and creeds, the topic of the passage is always the same thing. Christology, or Jesus Christ. New Testament scholars date these hymns and creeds from early in the 30s to late in the 30s. Examples would be Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, and 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. What we have then in these hymns and creeds embedded in the New Testament letters is evidence of the Christology of the Jewish Hebrew-Aramaic-speaking church in Jerusalem within no later than 18 months after the execution of Jesus. And what we find is that within 18 months, the early Jewish followers of Jesus already depicted him in monotheistic terms. They worshipped him by way of hymns. They sang to him as, as to a god. They viewed him as God himself. They, they prayed to him in a way that Jews would only pray to God. They viewed him as having been raised from the dead and as having performed miracles. Thus, from the death of Jesus to no later than 18 months, on the very soil where he had lived, we have monotheistic Jews who are already celebrating his deity, singing hymns to him, worshiping him, praying to him, and representing him as a risen from the dead miracle worker. 18 months, may I say, is well within an 80-year time frame. In addition to the dating, the second reason that the historical evidence for the resurrection and the life and miracles of Jesus is accurate is due to Jewish oral tradition. Jesus lived and practiced in an oral culture, and it was customary in the oral culture in the first century for great teachers and rabbis to gather students around them and to designate among their pupils a small group of students who were responsible for memorizing the teachings and the deeds of the rabbi so that when he died, they would pass on to further generations of disciples carefully memorized 
forms of his teachings and his deeds to be preserved for posterity. People in that oral culture were excellent at memorization and were able to memorize massive amounts of material on a few hearings. Jesus Christ, therefore, did exactly what rabbis customarily did. He had a large group of followers, but within that group of followers, he designated 12 of them to be his authoritative rabbinic students called apostles. It was their responsibility to commit Jesus' teachings and his deeds to memory. They were allowed to take notes, and indeed we now know that note-taking was permissible and practiced by the pupils of leading teachers in Jesus' day. But they were also committed to memorization of his teachings and deeds, and once Jesus died, it would have been their responsibility to pass on to others what he had said and done by memory and by written uh, text without changing it or adjusting it in any way. They saw their responsibility as preserving the information about Jesus and protecting it and keeping it pure. Since Jesus functioned in an oral culture, and since he patterned his relationship with his disciples in the way a rabbi would pattern his relationship to authorized rabbinic pupils who committed his teachings to memory, it follows that the process of preserving the information about Jesus from his death until they were written down in the Gospels would be historically preserving. It would preserve the accuracy of these materials for future generations. And by the way, we find that a good bit of Jesus' teachings in the Gospels, especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is in easily memorizable form. So the form of Jesus' teachings fits the idea that when Jesus taught these things, he did so in a way that would make the teachings easy to memorize and to pass on. The third reason that we know that these teachings are reliable has to do with archaeological confirmation of the New Testament. It is customary now for archaeologists to take the Gospels and the Book of Acts as reliable guides to archaeological sites and archaeological discoveries. Archaeology has repeatedly, over and over again, confirmed detailed information in the book of Acts and in the four Gospels. It follows, then, that the Gospels and Acts must have been written to be accurate history because it has repeatedly been confirmed to preserve detailed information that wasn't particularly relevant to the narratives that Acts and the Gospels are telling. Finally, the Gospels and the book of Acts contain information that would have been embarrassing to the apostles. And whenever a historical document has information that is embarrassing to the leaders of the movement that those documents support, the only reason those embarrassing details are preserved is because they're historically reliable. There would be no motive to preserve embarrassing information about the leaders of your movement unless those details were accurate. For example, during Jesus' lifetime, his brothers and sisters rejected him. But in Jesus' day, it was considered to be something that was not good if your family did not accept you and your teachings. This would have been very embarrassing for the apostles to share with people that during his life, Jesus' mother, his brothers and sisters sometimes rejected what he had to teach. On one occasion, 
Jesus said that there was no one good but God. And this would have and while there's a way of understanding that passage, this does raise questions about Jesus' own view of himself, and this is an embarrassing detail in the Gospels. Um, there was an occasion where Jesus didn't know things. When Jesus said, the Son of Man does not know the hour where he will return. And yet Jesus was God. How are we to explain this? The, the explanation is that Jesus did not know certain things in his human nature, but he did know them in his divine nature, and he was speaking from his human nature. But still, this would be an embarrassing detail to preserve in the Gospels. Finally, there are numerous occasions where the apostles were doubters, they lacked faith, they were cowards, they weren't good leaders. Why would a movement preserve information like that that would undermine the credibility of the very leaders of the movement itself after Jesus died? The only explanation can be that that's because this information is historically accurate. I have belabored this matter of the historical reliability of the New Testament documents to make an important point. That important point is that Jesus Christ is unique among all the world's religious leaders in the fact that there is solid historical evidence that he really did claim that he was God that he really did perform miracles, that he really did die on the cross and wasn't taken down from the cross before he died, and that he really did raise bodily from the dead. The historical evidence for this makes Jesus Christ unique compared to the legendary accounts of such deeds on behalf of the leaders of others of the world's religions. In addition, you must remember that the issue here is truth, not sincerity. A person can, after all, be sincerely wrong. We've all known cases where a doctor performed surgery only to operate on the wrong leg or the wrong foot or the wrong arm. The doctor was sincere, but was sincerely wrong. It follows, then, that a practitioner of another religion can be sincere in their practice of, say, Islam or Hinduism. But if they are not followers of Jesus, they are sincerely wrong. It must be remembered that sincerity is not enough. Truth is what matters. And I've already claimed that Jesus Christ is unique among all the world's religious leaders in having substantial historical evidence that he said and did the things that the New Testament records him as having said and did. Finally, the claim that there are several ways to God, is self-refuting. Something is self-refuting if it destroys itself. For example, the statement, there are no truths, is self-refuting, because that statement is offered as a truth. Again, the statement, no sentence of English is longer than three words, is self-refuting, because that statement itself is longer than three words. The claim there are several ways to God, and no particular way is the only way to God, does not allow those of us who claim there's only one way to God to be one of those several ways. Thus, those who say that there are several ways to God do not believe that exclusivist religions are legitimate ways to God. They, therefore, don't really believe that there are several ways to God. They only believe that that 
legitimate ways to God are those that are pluralistic. But those religions that make exclusivist claims are not counted as legitimate ways to God. Therefore, they pick and choose what religions they will accept as ways to God and what religions they won't accept as ways to God based upon whether those religions agree with them and their inclusivism. But that is no different than what Christianity does. Christianity says any religion is a legitimate way to God as long as it confesses and agrees that Jesus Christ is the unique Savior of the world and the only way to God. So that, the, the, so that pluralism, by excluding exclusivists, shows that it is as exclusivistic as any other approach to God. Having said that Jesus Christ is, the, is unique in these various ways, we ask the question now, what do we do about a person who has never had a chance to hear the gospel? The first thing that we have to remember is that according to 2 Timothy 2.4, 2 Peter 3.9, and Ezekiel 18.23 and 32, God desires that all men and women everywhere will be saved, and God does not take delight in the, in the death of the wicked. We're also told in Job 34.12 and Genesis 18.25 that God judges fairly. And we're told in Romans 2.11 that He judges impartially. What we have is then a picture not of God as this aloof, distant landlord of a world that He doesn't care about. Quite the opposite. God is not a cold, arbitrary being. God is passionately in love with His creation. He's passionately in love with men and women all over the world. The Bible says that God so deeply loved the entire world that He gave His Son for all of them. And so we have to remember that it is God's heart that everyone everywhere would be saved. And God is going to do everything He can, stopping short of coercing people's freedom, to ensure that they are given a fair impartial opportunity to pass from judgment into life. And those who do not pass from judgment into life and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ will be judged with great fairness and with great impartiality. Secondly, we need to remember that human beings do have light from creation that God exists and that they are guilty before a holy, personal God. Romans 1, 18 through 20, and Romans 2, 11 through 16 teach that creation assures everyone who wants to know that there is a personal God that exists, that this personal God is holy, and that we all stand justly condemned before this holy God. So that while God desires all men to be saved, everyone knows or should know and be able to know that they stand in judgment and need a Savior. Having said that, we say in addition that those who hear the gospel and reject it are clear. John chapter 3 tells us that those who refuse to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ once they've heard it, will be judged to everlasting punishment in hell. But what about those 
who, apparently through no fault of their own, simply don't get a chance to hear the gospel. What do we make of their situation? How should we understand what God does with them? First of all, we need to talk about people who were born and died before Jesus Christ came. And to understand their situation, we have to draw a distinction between the basis of their forgiveness and the means of appropriating that basis. According to Christianity, the very basis on which everyone before Christ, during Christ's time, and after He came are forgiven and made right in God's eyes is the death and the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. Thus, the basis of salvation for everyone is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. However, the means for appropriating that basis differs, especially with respect to people who were born and died before Christ came. It is very clear that the people who lived and died before Christ came did not have a full and clear understanding of the gospel. And so, while the death of Christ was applied to them for their forgiveness, the means of appropriating that could not have been understanding the gospel. It had to be instead living as well as one could in light of what had been revealed to them up until that time. And more specifically, in light of what had been revealed to them up until that time, crying out to God for mercy and for forgiveness according to the light that they had received by way of God's revelation. We make the same point about infants and people without the mental capacity to understand thought and propositions. In 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, David is talking about his child that had been born and died. And he says, you will not come back to me, but I will come to you. And many think that indicates that David believes that his son, that his child went to heaven when he died and that David knew that he would be reunited with his child in the afterlife in heaven after death, even though this child never had a chance to understand the gospel. You have to also remember that in the New Testament, children are always pictured positively in light of scriptural teaching, and in many cases they are pictured as the very examples of salvation. It would seem then that infants that die before the age of accountability and people who have mental handicaps who are simply incapable of understanding the gospel will have the death of Christ applied to them and they will be forgiven even though they've never had a chance to embrace the content of the gospel uh, itself. Now, what about people who are currently living in un among unreached peoples? The first thing that we can say about them is that God will somehow get the message to them if they are responding to the light that they have received. When God looks at the world and there are people who are responding and crying out to Him in ignorance and responding to the light that they've received from creation, that they need His mercy and forgiveness, God will make sure that they get an opportunity to hear His message, either by sending a missionary or by sending an angel or appearing to them in a dream. 
In these days, it is not uncommon for tens of thousands of Muslims in Muslim countries to first hear the good news that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that He is the only Savior through a dream or a vision of some kind. I personally know of Muslims who have come to Jesus understanding the gospel before a human being ever talked to them because an angel or the Lord Jesus Himself appeared in a dream or a vision. And there are accounts of missionaries from various countries around the world who've gone to unreached peoples. And these people have had the gospel made known to them at some level, even somewhat clearly, by way of a dream or a vision or an angelic appearance. And thus I suggest that if there are those among unreached peoples, God will get the message to them somehow, and we're on sure grounds to believe that. But what if no one will go? What if someone is unwilling to go? I admit that this is a hypothetical consideration that is not really addressed in the Bible. What would we do about someone in an unreached country that there's no one who's willing to go tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, I've already suggested that God will send an angel to that person or give them a dream or a vision to communicate the gospel directly. In addition, we have to bear in mind that God is just and He is not going to judge another person for my disobedience and not going. And we have to remember further that people are going to be judged by the light that they've received according to Matthew 12, 43 and 45 and John 15, 21 to 24. And not all people are going to be judged with the same severity. Luke 12, 47 to 48, Revelation 20, 11 to 13, Acts 10, 35. So it would seem then that the following are our options. In Acts chapter 10, we are told by Peter that people in every tribe and tongue who seek God will be eventually justified in his sight. This might include tribes and tongues for which no missionary was sent. Thus, people in unreached countries will either have, where a missionary does not go, will either have the gospel communicated to them by an angel or by some vision or dream, or God will judge them based upon his knowledge of what they would have done if they had had a chance to hear. That is an option that some people consider. I'm not sure about that option, but some people hold that out. And so the point that we need to bear in mind is that no one is ever going to be judged and sentenced to hell simply because they were born in a part of the world where there is no human being who is willing to go tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think the final thing that we need to keep in mind is that we are commanded to go to all the world and preach the gospel so that we as human beings should do every single thing we can in our power to make sure that everyone hears the gospel from a preacher before they die and have to face judgment in the afterlife. What I've tried to do is to say in this session that Jesus Christ is unique among all the religious leaders of the world. That Jesus Christ is, is the sole source of salvation and that God himself 
desires everyone to be saved and will judge fairly and impartially every single person on the face of the earth and will judge them with a heart of compassion and a heart of justice and fairness. It follows from this that God will deal fairly and justly with people no matter what their situation and people who are in parts of the world who haven't heard the gospel, God will either get the gospel to them or will in any case judge them fairly and honestly and impartially. I want to urge you in closing to keep in mind that the Christian claim that Jesus Christ is the unique way to God is not a claim that Christians make by themselves. It was a claim that Jesus himself made. In fact, the reason Christians believe Jesus was the only way to God is because Jesus himself taught that. And those of us who claim to love Jesus Christ must obey and believe his teachings. And this is one of the teachings that he has placed before us to trust. I also want to urge you to remember that the teachings of Jesus are, re are grounded in solid historical evidence. I challenge Muslims, I challenge Hindus, I challenge Buddhists to provide solid historical evidence that we ought to listen to their religious leaders as conveyors of divine revelation. I do not believe that there is sufficient historical evidence to believe that Muhammad was a purveyor of divine revelation, or that Buddha, or that Krishna, or other avatars of the divine in Hinduism are people that should be listened to to give us religious truth. By contrast, the historical evidence is such that Jesus Christ, his teachings, his life, his deeds, his claims, his resurrection from the dead, are based on adequate historical evidence to believe that these things really, really happened. It is for this reason that I have given my entire life to Jesus Christ, and I call him not only my Savior, but the Savior of the entire world.